Attention, culture consumers. Join me, the queen of queries, Sarah O'Connor, and my band of nerdy knights. Colleen McMillan. Flo Siegel. And Anders Drew. On Bohemian Geek Studies, where we take extremely dorky dives into our favorite fandoms, especially that Star Wars galaxy far, far away. Listen each week as we examine the stories that mean so much to us. Bohemian Geek Studies is available wherever you get your podcasts and is proudly part of the Forgotten Entertainment family. Do you like beer? Do you like podcasts? Do you like beer podcasts? Then check out Cracking One Open, a podcast about brews, news, and pop culture reviews. Every week we crack open a new craft beer from breweries around the country. And sometimes the world. We'll talk about how it was made, what's in it, the history of the brew, and the brewery. Then we'll give our tasting notes, and while we're finishing up, we'll talk about some of the latest goings-on in the world of pop culture. So check out Crackin' When Open with Mike and Elise, part of the Forgotten Entertainment family. Some guy has some other job is Mr. Purple. You're Mr. Pink. Welcome. This is On the QT. This is a brand new show brought to you by Forgotten Entertainment. It is a, uh, I guess you can call us a mini series. I'm John, by the way. I'm your host. And my co-host is the aptly last named Lloyd Green. Why is Green important in this episode? Well, On the QT is a podcast about the films of Quentin Tarantino. As of right now, upon recording in December of 2020, there are 10 films. So just to give you a little history on us very quickly, Lloyd and myself uh, host a podcast called Pine of Comics, a pop culture podcast where we talk about all different things. We are very good friends with the gents from Forgotten Entertainment. And at one point I had kind of mentioned to uh, Mike Field that I had been thinking about doing a series within our show where we t- kind of talk about Quentin Tarantino movies, but it was going to take forever. We're going to do 10 episodes. It would be spaced out like one every month or two months. And he liked the idea and he said, we're looking for some stuff to do on the show. So why don't you bring it over uh, on our, on our, uh, on our channel network. Why don't you bring that burden right off our shoulders? He took it off our shoulders. So that's what on the QT is, is it's a brand new show uh, brought to you by forgotten entertainment and where we talk about the 10 films of Quentin Tarantino. Uh, now, on our show, we always have a lot of guests and we've had a lot of great repeat guests. So I had the idea to take 10 of our guests and to uh, take each movie. I took a piece of paper, gave each guest a number and then drew ha- uh, drew numbers out of a hat. And we got into uh, who was going to cover each movie with us. So this is Reservoir Dogs. This is your episode. Uh, and Lloyd and I are going to talk about Reservoir Dogs. But we have our guest, Laura. We met on the dark web at one point on our show. <laughs> Laura's been on our show several times and she's proven to be a great guest. I think, you know, even though we're not going to get into it too much right now, Tarantino's got 10 movies and there are ranges of how good or how bad his movies may be to some people. I definitely think Laura, uh, when I picked her name out of the hat for our number one, she definitely uh, lucked out. Let's just say yeah. there was there were certain people that I picked other movies for death proof that were uh, just to make fun of death proof a little bit uh, that were kind of like uh, who got reservoir dogs, <laughs> you know, who got, who got Pulp Fiction, you know? So, so this is the first film from Quentin Tarantino writer and director. Okay. This guy, he's synonymous. He is in the last, I don't know, 25, 30 years, he has become synonymous with filmmaking uh, and a certain type of filmmaking, even though he doesn't necessarily make the, same type of movie over and over again. He doesn't, but he has much like Steven Spielberg or someone in that 
category of filmmaking he has kind of added to the to the lexicon of filmmaking like you know he, he's got his own style you know when you're watching a quentin tarantino movie so he has a style lloyd can you like immediately identify when you're watching uh, if, if you were watching a movie and you didn't know it's tarantino do you think you'd identify it from him yeah so i think i could if i watched it for long enough you know maybe maybe 10 10 minutes or so probably could get it. Well, he's definitely got that non-linear style, you know, very raw action, um, lots of profanity. Yeah. Certain touchstones. If the fuck, if yeah, the F word, touchstones. <laughs> or as I was going to call it, the fuck word, if the fuck word is in the, <laughs> in the movie, like more than 2,700 times, it's probably Tarantino. Um, 269 times, I believe in Reservoir Dogs. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah. Wow. All right. And Lloyd, I'll ask you uh, first and then we'll go to Laura. Uh, Do you remember because this is like probably the most important one of the bunch being the first. Do you remember the first time you saw this or heard of this? Well, the first Tarantino movie I saw was not this one. It was the next one. And I remember finding out about this one after Pulp Fiction. And then I, you know, went back and got it on VHS, you know, rented it, whatever. Okay. And so that's my first viewing. Were you were you immediately enthralled with this movie? Or? Oh God, yeah. I mean, I, I've loved Tarantino ever since Pulp Fiction. So, yep. All right, Laura, do you remember the first time you saw? I'm assuming you were probably too young to see this uh, upon original run, or at least I'd hope maybe. Yeah, I was about six, five or six when it came out originally. So my parents wouldn't take me to see it. Uh, <laughs> I probably saw it for the first time, uh, freshman or sophomore in high school. So 2000, 2001. Had also seen Pulp Fiction before. Reservoir Dog. So I was looking forward. I remember I was in my, I was obviously at my parents' house. I was in high school in the basement, big screen TV, just really psyched to see the, because I loved Pulp Fiction. So I just wanted to expand on Quentin Tarantino and it didn't disappoint. I still love the movie. Awesome. Uh, me, I was in high school, I think my senior year when it came out, I did not see it, but um, a group of my friends had seen it and it was not like a widely released movie. So I think, you know, maybe they had gone to like one of the art cinema houses to see it. And I do remember um, them fawning over it, talking about how great this guy Tarantino is and, um, you know, s- specific touchstones like the uh, the cop torture scene. That's mm-hmm. something that, you know, when, when you talk about this movie, you almost always go back to for a couple different reasons. And I think when it came out on VHS, I rented it and it is it is one of the true moments in my life where a movie like immediately like registers with me. And then there's a lot of movies I love, but Reservoir Dogs like immediately registered. Like everything is is done like pretty right, which is amazing because this is the first time this guy gets out of the gate. It's incredible. Yeah, the torture scene is is definitely a definitive moment. Uh, I'm curious once we get into this, what would be your favorite scenes? Oh, okay. All right. We'll talk about that. So yeah. uh, Reservoir Dogs comes out uh, on January 21st, 1992 at the Sundance Film Festival. And that's where it gets picked up uh, to be released later that year. October, I have two different dates, but the one that I read uh, more was October 9th. But I also that's read the what 20- I got. Okay, I read the 25th as well, but let's call bullshit on that. Um, Speaking of I- Sundance, did you hear about the happenings there? We didn't that- have the lens scope. So it was like in a different aspect ratio yeah. and they lost power oh, yeah. during the final, you know, the Mexican standoff scene. Mm-hmm. Okay. I know that, I know that he got up in the middle of the movie because it wasn't being shown in the correct aspect. And he like, he started yelling at the projectionist to yeah, stop the movie. Yeah, part of it was cut off on the side. Yeah. I did like, not know that during the Mexican standoff that it, it shut down. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, wow. it's pretty much a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, it all worked out because he ends up getting picked up. We'll get into cast in a minute, but obviously Harvey Keitel is a, is a much bigger player in this whole thing than just being, you know, what you would almost call the lead in this movie because his wife ended up getting a script of this movie through uh, various means. She ends up getting it to Harvey Keitel. And he was, if you look at the, the credits, he was a co-producer on this. If Harvey mm-hmm. Keitel never, you know, threw his money in or threw his name on it, who knows, you know, yeah, right. Who knows what would have happened? Yeah, and it's, it would have it, been just a handheld like camcorder with a bunch of people that Quentin Tarantino knew, like with some ketchup. That's what it was. <laughs> yeah, it was really a thirty thousand dollar budget with just uh, friends of his. Yeah. Did you read what the original uh, synopsis was? No. So the original synopsis was when he was going to make this as a $30,000 feature with friends uh, was that it was just going to be essentially one part of the story. And it was going to be um, the scene where Mr. Pink is running away from the uh, cops with the diamonds. It was going to be that scene. But Lawrence Bender, who is uh, the producer on this and has gone on to produce other Tarantino films, was going to play Pink. And that was going to be like the whole movie was just like that one section. So you don't really know what, what it's about, what's happening. You just know it's cops chasing a dude, hurriedly running down a street <laughs> in Los Angeles. Uh, that cop up. was uh, Lawrence Bender. The cop ended up being Lawrence Bender in the film. Yes. Yeah. That so like it would have made a really interesting short film. It absolutely right. would have. And, yeah. and, you know, I don't think they, I maybe think not a feature film. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. And I think maybe that's what he was shooting for at the time was a short film, which would make, yeah, you know, just think about that. Like, think about like, say you make a 10 minute short film that costs $30,000. Like that's just, you know, <laughs> that's ridiculous. But hey, Harvey Keitel got involved. They got 1.5 million and the rest is history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tarantino, you know, real quick, uh, not to get too far into him right now. Here's a guy that is, a lifelong uh, grindhouse uh, movie watcher, just every type of movie ever, horror, sci-fi, exploitation, crime movies. He loves it all. He works at a video store in uh, Manhattan Beach, uh, California. He's almost like the video store savant where all the customers go to him to find out what movies to check out. And, uh, and this is where his origins of, you know, he is essentially that dude that like just spent all of his time in the video store, you know, and people do accuse him of this. They say that he steals a lot from other directors and other stories. I like to look at it as more like he, uh, he kind of, you know, pays homage to homage, homage, you know, there's a lot about this movie that, that is the same. Yeah. He admits that he takes things from other films very freely. He's very open about that. People try to use it against him, but he just, he loves the movies and he puts that into movies that he makes. Yeah. I think is great. Yeah. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. All right. So why don't we get into uh, the, the idea, what this movie is about? We usually call that the bumper sticker over on our show. Uh, you know what? This is our show, too. So let's call yeah. it the bumper sticker here <laughs> on the QT. Uh, Laura, I'm going to go to you for this. Okay. Give me the uh, succinct storyline of what Reservoir Dogs is about. Okay. So uh, let's see if I tell this in the, the linear fashion or the way that it's actually portrayed in the movie. But uh, well, okay. Tim Roth, Mr. Orange, he plays an undercover cop. Seems to me it's probably his first undercover job that he's dealing with. Yeah. Uh, he he and his partner, I actually forgot his partner's name now, but they find a way for him to get involved in these crime families. Well, yeah, crime families. And they're doing a diamond heist. And the man running it, Joe, he has picked five people that don't know each other. And he, most of them he knows. He doesn't know Mr. Orange. And they have a very detailed plan to do the heist. 
uh, it all goes wrong. Mr. Blonde just starts shooting everybody because somebody uh, tripped off the alarm. So everything goes haywire. People get shot. Mr. White, Mr. Orange, and Mr. Brown get away initially, but Mr. Brown was hurt. And they bring Mr. Orange back to their, uh, their meetup spot. And, you know, Miss, Mr. Blonde shows up eventually. Oh, yeah. Well, Mr. Orange obviously got shot in the gut. <laughs> the biggest part that... Laura is giving the most... <laughs> so Is that what succinct means? <laughs> I'm, I'm fine with that. We'll get, we'll get into all that. I'm sorry. So, so essentially, essentially, six criminals uh, rob a, a diamond store oh, yeah. in L.A. I'm describing the plot. <laughs> oh, it's fine. No, no, no. There's, there is no, there's no right and no wrong here <laughs> in, on, on the QT. Six criminals uh, who, who don't know each other hired to do a job and it goes bad. That's, that's the basic idea of it. But what I like about the fact that you kind of went on like that was that when you do say the plot of this movie, six criminals rob a diamond uh, store and, uh, you know, things go wrong. That seems like a very simple movie. Yeah. As you started to break it down, you start to realize that there's nothing simple about what's happening in this movie. And part of it is because Lloyd mentioned this before in kind of the QT fashion, the the Quentin Tarantino fashion, is that it's not told in a linear uh, fashion. It's, uh, you know, we we have scenes going here, scenes going here. We have chapter breaks that introduce us to characters. So it's it's a puzzle almost. It's not hard. It's not, there's nothing about it that's, it's not like a a movie where, you know, you're, you're struggling to figure out what goes where but it's just told in a super interesting storytelling design yeah i think in this film it works perfectly the way he places those you know nonlinear or flashbacks because they're placed right when you need to see them so that you can know the motivations behind what's going on like in the upcoming scene right it's really amazing it's perfect all right, Lloyd, why don't we go through the cast? Let's talk about who's in this. And this, unlike some of the movies we do, this isn't, uh, shouldn't be too, too long because there's only, what, eight people in this movie? Yeah. <laughs> so we got um, Harvey Keitel as Mr. White uh, slash Larry. Larry. <laughs> Larry. Larry. I'm, I'm sorry, Larry. Larry. All right, sorry. We'll try to do this a little quicker than what we normally do. Yeah, um, well, we're, we're going to go through just through the cast, and then yeah. we'll. Hold, I'm gonna I'm gonna do my best to sh- to shut up and get through the cast, and then we'll go into the story. No, no, I meant nothing towards you at all. <laughs> um, mostly, I meant towards me. Um, Michael Madsen as Mister Blonde slash Vic Vega, who would be the brother of Vince Vega from Pulp Fiction. That's right. Then we have Steve Buscemi Buscemi as Mister Pink. Uh, which was originally the uh, the Tarantino role. He really wanted that role until Buscemi came along. Edward Bunker as Mr. Blue. Edward Bunker was a former criminal himself, um, and I believe was used quite a bit in those type of you know criminal movies, heist he, movies, things. He like was that. originally hired on this movie to be a consultant to get to talk to them about how a diamond heist would go. Yes, and Tarantino liked him, and they needed someone else, and uh, they were short actors, so they threw him in. There you go. No relation to Archie Bunker. No. (laughs) Then we have Quentin Tarantino as Mr. Brown. You know who Quentin Tarantino is. Chris Penn as nice guy, Eddie. Chris Penn, uh, brother of Sean Penn. Yep. Passed away a few years ago. Chris Penn and Reservoir Dogs doesn't have a line that he doesn't spit out. 17. (laughs) 17, (laughs) Like if you talk to Chris Penn directly, you are going to need a towel and probably some... Yeah, and you're gonna need some like like very clean, uh, moist wipes afterwards. That's right. Uh, Lawrence Tierney as Joe Cabot, um, Chris Penn's father. 
pretty much the head of the whole monster unit. Randy Brooks as Detective Holloway. You don't see him too much, but he's in the Tim Roth scenes. Kirk Baltz as Officer Marvin Nash. The Marv, or, Marvin or Nash. <laughs> My name is Marvin Nash. Marvin Nash. Freddie, or what was it? Jimmy introduced us last year. <laughs> Fuck you, Marvin. I'm dying over here. <laughs> Uh. <laughs> uh, and finally, I'll go with Stephen Wright as the voice of K. Billy, the DJ. Yes, K. Billy Superstars, the sounds of the '70s. You can't talk about a Tarantino movie without talking a little bit about the because um, this guy is not only a massive movie fan; he's a massive music fan. There's no score in this movie at all. Every bit of sound you hear is either an overlay of Stephen Wright talking as the DJ or and it's it's done in very interesting fashion. The radios are on. So, you you know, you yes. turn the radio on and you get the sounds of this radio station, which include, you know, Steelers wheel stuck in the middle with you, which is obviously one of the most famous scenes of all time at this point. Uh, as we talk and, about and the every single scene. dollar of the music budget went towards that song. Really? Yeah. Incorporating the rights of that song. Wow. That was it. Worth That's it. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it's, so, it's so iconic. I mean, you ha- sometimes you have to splurge on good stuff like that. Yeah. You got to wonder almost if the guys in Steelers wheel feel like a little weird that their song is like mostly known for being in a scene where a cop oh, is getting his ear torn off. They definitely love it. Yeah. That, that, get, that still gets them like they're still in the hearts of so many people because yeah. of that scene. That is true. If if they don't love that him for that, they definitely should. (laughs) So as Laura, as Laura broke it down a little bit before, uh, we're going to just kind of jump through this movie. We're not going to hit every scene, but we're going to talk about uh, bits and pieces of it. This film starts uh, pretty famously as well uh, with the, uh, with the criminals all now, these guys are all dressed up in the same exact suit. Um, They're wearing a black suit, skinny tie, except for um, nice guy, Eddie, who's in a track suit. <laughs> and, uh, and clothes, by the way. Yes, Chris, Chris, Chris Penn's actual clothes. Yeah, they had such a small, uh, such a small budget that Chris Penn wore his own clothes in certain scenes. That track jacket was his. I uh, like Steve- knowing that those are the clothes that Chris Penn wears or wore in his everyday life. You like that, right? <laughs> do you think that, do you think that he could wear that afterwards? Like, you know, it's like, it's like, that's your reservoir dogs thing. It's like, it was mine before. All right. <laughs> I love this jacket. I love this jacket. Wearing. Yeah. I'm not going to stop wearing it because the movie was a hit. <laughs> so they're sitting around uh, as you would, and they're having breakfast. And this is the scene that like, to me, right off the bat hooked me in. Because Tarantino's the writer and director. He does a lot of great visual things in this movie, but I think his directing style has improved immensely over the course of 10 movies. I think his writing style was there from the very beginning. So visually, I think he definitely gets better as you go along. I do think this is a good looking movie and there's a lot of good things in it. But this first scene and this conversation, which includes a roundabout conversation about what Like a Virgin is about. We have an offshoot conversation where uh, Joe Cabot is uh, is talking to himself about a notebook he found. And and Mr. White and him are arguing back and forth about that. It shifts into an entire uh, bit about tipping and whether we should tip or not. Now, I do want to ask something. I have a question for you guys. Now, this is obviously uh, 2020. This is not 1992. But uh, Laura, do you think we should tip McDonald's workers? Uh, I, uh, if they're nice, <laughs> well, this is going to make me sound like a dick if I don't do it all the time. But uh, I mean, I'll put a dollar in or like my change in a tip jar. Does it, does it kind of make you like, did, did Mr. Pink make you think about that, though, when you saw that and went, why do we give these people 
money, but not these. Now I get it. These people come back and forth. This person's just there, but like, I'm not, Hey, I'll tip. I'm not a non tipper. I'm not Mr. Pink. Oh, yeah, of course. But he did open my eyes a little bit. Like why, why does society tell me I tip this guy and not that guy? Well, I, I understand the argument that he's arguing, but uh, waiters and waitresses don't make full wage. They only make part wage, especially at least around here. But I think they only make half of minimum wage at restaurants. I, I yeah. think so, that yeah, might be tips, true or something like that. Tips supplement that. I'm, I don't agree with it. I feel like they probably should make full wage. Why not? They're working just as hard as anybody else. I do wonder if tipping has gone out of control in other areas. I mean, also, where do you draw the line to tip? Who See? do you tip? Who do you not tip? So yes, I sympathize with his argument. I don't agree with the way that he brought it up or the way he goes about it. But <laughs> I do have questions like that myself. Who, who didn't toss a buck in? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I would never not tip at a restaurant, but there are other places where uh, I wonder whether I should or not, <laughs> if it's necessary. Lloyd. I I definitely tip. I understand his argument, although it wasn't 100% accurate. But I have struggled with the things like if you if you order ahead and then you go pick up for takeout, do you tip them? Do you tip in a buffet style restaurant where somebody does actually come and bring you drinks? All right. So, so, so I'm a normal. Normally, I'm a, I'm a tipper. Yeah. All right. So Mr. Pink might have some McDonald's workers. No, he might have some. <laughs> what I like about this scene so much, uh, first of all, the like a virgin talk is is hilarious. And I never thought about it one single time that I've seen this movie. I've seen this movie a million times until I was, you know, kind of doing some research on the movie to do this show is that it's made even funnier when you realize that Chris Penn, Chris Penn. was Madonna's brother-in-law yeah. for several years when Sean Penn was married to her. So he knows her and like, yeah. he's talking about like the, like, you know, these using these terrible words like coos and stuff. And it's like, Oh, I hope he's still not cool with her. Cause this might be awkward. Well, <laughs> um, and it, uh, I think it's really Tarantino's argument. No one else is really agreeing with him. No, yeah, but, everybody's uh, just kind of like going like, okay, dude. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's definitely he's definitely out there on his own on that. What so, I love about this whole uh, conversation in the diner is it really sets up. It's like an overture for future Tarantino films. Like all, it just sets up. Hey, this is what you should be expecting from my stuff. You know, real life dumbass conversations. This is the stuff you're not going to see in any normal heist film. You know, it just it just sets the tone. It's like. It's like the beginning of a great album. You know, you get like the, the first Led Zeppelin album. You got um, um, for good times, bad times. Like it's just like that. It's like setting up perfection. Walks you right in the door. Right. It just yeah. walks you right in the door. It's like well, here. It, it lets you know that you're this guy's a writer who is writing criminals and bad people but they're real people because you know, like, like one of the bits that like really gets me is, and it goes along with the, with the Mr. White character of Harvey Keitel is that when they have the argument about the tipping, he comes out with all these factoids about like what witches make. And so you can either figure one thing, he's either full of shit or this guy is actually kind of a smart guy, which again, in, in, in a lot of these movies, you're not thinking necessarily that these thug type characters think much else about anything other than like, you know, robbing banks and stuff, but he's having this like honest, smart conversation about like, well, you know, do you know what these women make? You know, like it just, it's kind of funny to see this and you see it in Pulp Fiction a lot too. The other side 
of criminal life. You know what I mean? Like that it's a real thing that people are real no matter what they do. I love that setup scene. Um, we get out of the diner and we get the uh, very iconic walk through the back of the parking lot. I did, I did laugh cause I had, you know, doing more research. People were saying that one of the biggest complaints fans have of this movie is like, do you think that they would really have breakfast together in those suits? Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, I, I never thought about it. <laughs> no, it doesn't make sense. And I was reading Eddie Bunker, Mr. Blue. He had mentioned, he's like, it's a very unrealistic movie. That would be the worst idea to one wear matching clothes that are <laughs> highly identifiable and to go out in public beforehand. And yeah. Just, which, you know, again, I also didn't really ever think about that so much before, but that makes complete sense. It's stupid. It's <laughs> yeah. stupid, but it sets it up. It does yeah. set it up. It's, it's, it, but it makes for great, great movie. <laughs> So as we jump ahead a little bit, kind of jump ahead, and we're now in the situation where we're in a car. Mr. White and Mr. Orange are in a car together. We don't know what's happened to everybody else. Mr. Orange is bleeding like a stuck pig in the back (laughs) of the car. He's a bloody mess. Mr. White is driving, holding his hand, uh, sing-songly telling him, you're not gonna die. Um, (laughs) That's right. That's one of the things I say in my head all the time. Like, you're gonna be okay. (laughs) That's right. You're gonna be okay. (laughs) Say the fucking words. I'm myself down with Harvey Keitel's voice. (laughs) (laughs) Harvey Keitel lives in Laura's head. Yeah, Um, it's nice. Now, I do want to point out that I think all the actors in this movie are fantastic, and I, I'm not saying this in a mean way. I love Tim Roth. I think he's been great in a lot of things. And I think he's great in this. But two things I noticed immediately with Tim Roth are, first of all, you could tell he is an English actor doing an American voice. He, mm-hmm. he, a lot of like his word pronunciations are like kind of hard. Like he's trying to say certain things a certain way. And the other thing is, is that when, when he is shot, he becomes a Muppet. Like there's yeah. no other way to put it. I know that was a weird, a weird voice coming out of it. It's Larry. It's just like, you picture him like up there, like up on, up on the stage with like Kermit, like going like this or something, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like, he, he becomes a Muppet, but so we don't know what happened to him. We're, as we're jumping around the story. We find out eventually that as they are uh, leaving the, the scene of the crime, which we'll tell you in a second what happened there as we're leaving the scene of the crime, they're all broken apart. Him and Mr. White are trying to get away. And as they're trying to commandeer a car, a woman goes in her glove compartment, pulls a gun out and not knowing that, uh, that Mr. Orange, as Laura said, is an undercover cop shoots him in the gut thinking that he's a criminal. So he did his job at the very least shoots him in the gut with a gun and he kills her. And so, like, and we never even get into that in the movie. You know what I mean? Like you never get into no. that, but you see it in his eyes. There's a couple of times that Tim Roth like acts with his eyes really well. Go ahead, Laura. I thought you were going to say something. No, yeah, like uh, you just—he's on the ground. He, you can see how devastated he is at yeah. what he just did. And also, I wonder if—are we supposed to think that this was a reaction? Like, did he shoot her because he just got shot, or was he shooting her to stay undercover? Ooh, like, that's so. To me, I think it's a reaction, but. That's that brings up a good question, because when you do that kind of job, you have to now killing someone's a whole nother level. But you do Mm -hmm. have to be willing to do certain things if you're, you know, moving that way. Maybe he meant to just shoot her. You know, I mean, we don't know. They never I don't think we know where they where he shot her. It looked like he shot her in the chest. I thought. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was definitely like a kill shot. It was a kill shot. Yeah. Yeah. Like I was thinking like he doesn't I feel like if he hadn't meant to shoot her and he just did it as a knee jerk reaction, he would have reacted after he did it. But he doesn't really react more than like you could see how upset he is that he did it. So I kind of feel like he shot her in order to stay undercover because the job wasn't done yet. All right. 
Could be. He's that also got be. one in his belly, so yeah, he's yeah, had he a lot about just that. Be completely crazy and just not know what's going on. <laughs> so, Lloyd, what is the reason? Now, obviously, we haven't, and we never. And here's the thing: this is a, a choice by Tarantino, and it's a brilliant choice, in my opinion. We don't see the heist. Mm-hmm. We no. don't know as an audience what went wrong, but we find out through conversations between Mr. White. Which is and, great. It is great. Yeah, I love the whole thing's about a joy heist, and we don't see a bit of it. Not not even a single second of it. Um, we do find out through conversation back at the rendezvous between Mr. White and Mr. Pink, which is another great scene between two great actors. You know, probably 10, 15 minutes long, ten minutes long of them going through different you know moments. Um, what ended up happening? What happens at the jewelry heist? So basically. Somebody pulls an alarm in the jewelry store and the cops are there right away. And Mr. Blonde just starts going crazy and just starts popping people left and right. Chaos ensues and everybody basically just goes their own way. Yeah. Mr. Blonde kills, you know, they, they mentioned uh, how old, what do you think that girl was? 20. You know, yeah. he, he goes on a rampage. Now we learn in one of the flashbacks that flashbacks that Mr. Blonde is an old basically worker B for Joe Cabot and a nice guy, Eddie, he did time for them. Uh, he basically did four years, just, he could have named names. He didn't did four years quietly. He's come back into the fold. He's stuck in a halfway house. He's trying to find work, not legitimate work. He wants to you know do stuff. They bring him in, but you quickly find out that this guy is, is a psychopath. He's unhinged. He's a, psycho. <laughs> he's a complete psycho. He's not the kind of cool headed guy you would want working this type of job. So now we've have these different factions and they're starting to figure out, you know, Mr. Pink and Mr. White, start discussing the fact that somebody hears a cop because as you mentioned, as soon as the shooting started, the cops came and they determined that this could not have been an alarm that got the cops that fast. Someone was waiting for us, which we find out through the course of the story, Mr. Orange being the cop, he's being followed by cops. They're waiting for Joe Cabot to come in so they can get him. So now we find out, uh, Laura, what happens to, so we lose two characters during the course of the whole thing. What two colors go down and how do they go down? Or at least, well, we know one. Well, we know Mr. Brown at first because Mr. Orange and Mr. White were with him. So they state that plainly, but, uh, Mr. Blue was also killed in the, the rampage that ensued at the heist, but that wasn't, they didn't find that out until later on in the movie. It was awfully convenient way to get rid of the two non-actors out of the whole yeah. bit. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, like, okay, we, we do see mi- a little bit more of Mr. Brown uh, in the getaway. Yeah. yeah, we get to see his injury before he yes. finally kills over in the front seat and dies. Yeah. Was he shot in the head or was he so? Yeah. Yeah. It just, that's, that's what it, they, they don't said. show that, but you see gun gunplay. I think he's bleeding from his head. He wasn't like shot in the head, like middle of your forehead. Kind of, he, I, I, it had to have been like, cause he had to drive the car away yeah. from the heist after he gotten shot. So it had to, I don't really know much about head bullet injuries, but Good. Uh, it had to, yeah. <laughs> Good. He probably Laura. got a little bit of his brain. Yeah. And so he was able to drive for a little while. Before he had a little bit left. Yeah. He had a little bit left. And a little bit of juice left. Uh, as we're going through and we're learning more about these characters, we learned that Mr. White, uh, they do a flashback to him, a little chapter break, is a, uh, a thief who at one point had worked with another thief that, uh, that Joe Cabot had used. And he is uh, essentially just come into town, offered a, a slot on this job. A little bit where they're kind of showing you how they put everybody together. You don't see. Uh, Mr. Pink, Mr. Blue, or Mr. Brown, but we get Mr. Blonde, we get Mr. White, and then obviously the undercover cop, we get Freddie Newendike. Freddie Newendike, <laughs> who is uh, his Tim Roth. And we get to see some really cool scenes where he is actually practicing being an undercover cop. His boss or his partner gives him pointers. And as Laura said earlier, it, it is his first time, right? And what's one of the things, Lloyd, that his boss gives him to do so that he can fit in to this world? 
this here is my actually my favorite whole scene or segment in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're talking, you know, they're talking about the undercover operation. I think it was maybe they're up on a roof or they're in a parking lot. And he gives him an anecdote. So he gives him like four pages of an anecdote, a, a funny little anecdote, so he can so he can get in with the crew. He looks at it. He goes, "What's this? Four pages? What am I supposed to memorize this?" And he's like, "No, no. It's you just got to learn. You know how to tell a joke? No. <laughs> yes, well, <laughs> yeah. it's like a joke. You just learn the, the details of it, the fine points of it, and you make up the rest, and and you own it. And uh, so then it basically, like you said, it goes through where he." He starts reading through, he's talking to himself, you know, going through what the story's going to be in his own mind. And then he starts doing it, rehearsing it in front of, um, what's his name again? I honestly don't remember. Uh, uh, it's some, it's like hideaway or something like that. Holloway, right? Holloway. Yeah. 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 Hold away. Hold away. Hold away. Hold away. There. I was close. Hide away. <laughs> and so, yeah, you just see the story progressing and it's getting better and better. And he's, he's owning it. He's taking much better ownership. And then it goes into um, real time where you see him actually now telling this story to Joe and, and the crew. The, the great thing about this is you get a story within a story within a story. Yeah. Right. So when he finally gets to the part, the meat of like what he's telling them is that he's got drugs on him. He goes into a men's room, some establishment, I forget what. He walks in the men's room and there's four cops talking to each other with, with a dog that's drugs. barking at him. Yeah, Obviously, a, dog. the dog's sniffing out the drugs and there he is not knowing what's, what to do. And all the cops stop telling their story because the cops are telling a story, which is sir ties into this whole thing. It's awesome. I am going to shoot you in the face, sir. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that guy, that guy played the best cop ever. Cause he really came across <laughs> as a cop. <laughs> so, so what that does basically it, it drives home the point that he walks in there. There's four cops. He's got drugs. He's got a, a dog sniffing out the drugs and the cops are so involved in their own story that they ignore the facts in front of him. He goes on, he takes a pee. He leaves. He's fine. He's in with the crew. The, the crew loves the story. Yeah. One of my favorite parts about that whole bit is that, you know, he, uh, <laughs> hold away, hide away, Holloway <laughs> says to him, make you know things your own. And in it, there's a part where he says that he's telling the story about how like his weed hookups boyfriend went to jail. And one of them's like, for what? And he immediately comes up with like some bullshit answer. Yeah. It it shows like that. He's actually mastered this. Another Um, part of that scene that I like, I just want to say is when he's uh, drying his hands on the hair hand dryer and they all like, and you see it's in slow motion. They stop to look at him. Like that's not really happening, but that's just how Tim Roth is mm -hmm. like saying he experienced it. And I like that because it wasn't, like they didn't all stop and look at him when he was drying his hands. That's just what he was trying to convey that he was perceiving because he was so nervous. Which- right. Yeah. No, it's it again. Uh, Tarantino is he, he could spin a story. He, he totally could spin a story. There's a couple like I, I wanted to say real quick. We were talking about like some of the choices he makes in this that I think people might think are weird. I actually liked a lot. Like there's one scene in the um, early part where Tim or um, Mr. Pink, Steve Buscemi and Mr. Uh, White, Harvey Hattel are when they're having their conversation and and there's one bit where the entire bit of it is filmed where you could see Harvey Keitel, but Mr. Pink is inside the room off camera and they're having a conversation. Most movies don't do that. Like most movies, like it's like, it's like you have to see your two main characters. Right. I like the fact that you could only see one of them and you don't know his 
gestures. You don't know where Mr. Pink is kind of laying. And then there's an, the other bit I like a lot, which is just really random, is in the scene, and we'll, we'll talk about this, uh, Mr. Blonde is torturing the cop. The camera just pans up to an archway of a door for mm-hmm. the entirety of the action. Now, that could be because it was too graphic. That could be for a lot of reasons, but they could have done a lot of other things. Mm-hmm. It's a weird choice. But and as I watched it the other night, I, I kind of went, oh, I kind of forgot about this, but I I kind of like it too. And yeah. what makes it work better is when they come off of that archway, they go directly to uh Mr. Blonde with the ear. Yeah, he's got the ear off already. Making a funny little comment and then talking to the ear. Oh, can you hear me? <laughs> <laughs> I think like what you forget is that the first time you saw this movie, you didn't know he was cutting off his ear. Heightened padding back to it with him in the ear like obviously now you watch it on like your fifth sixth rewatch or whatever it is you know that he's doing that but the first time you watch that you did not know what you were about to see when they pan the camera back which i think is great and that really heightens the suspense of the moment more than you actually seeing it happen right no you're absolutely right you do you do you take it for granted that you know that this is the ear scene Mm -hmm. not everybody knows that you know mr blonde has been left at the warehouse alone after coming back and uh and you know basically he's on the outs with mr white mr white and mr pink go to help nice guy eddie they're all trying to figure out what's going on in this whole thing uh, Mr. Blonde is left with Mr. Orange, who's dying on the floor, and he brought in his trunk uh, a uniform cop. He essentially starts torturing the cop as soon as Mr. White. He doesn't even wait for the door to shut. Like they leave. Like you would think. Like he's almost like a kid where he's like, "I'm gonna wait till mom and dad go." They the door shuts and he starts fucking with the cop immediately. <laughs> yeah, I'm watching that scene right now. Yeah, he's like, he's like, I can't wait to like hurt you. So there's some chilling stuff in there. Like one of the most chilling lines, and I'll paraphrase it is um. You can say whatever you want to say. I've heard it all before. I don't give a shit what you know. <laughs> I'm just going to torture you because I like to torture people. Like that is yeah. when, like if you heard that in real life, you just would shit your pants to all completion because that's <laughs> when you know that you're dealing with somebody completely unhinged. And we, we get, we get this torture scene. Uh, he's dancing to Steelers wheel stuck in the middle and cuts the guy's ear off. And he is about to uh, burn him alive. He goes out to his car. This is another great scene because again, this proves the soundtrack is, is pretty much in the world of the movie. He's playing it on the radio in the warehouse as he goes outside to his car it's such a stark difference because he's in this dark warehouse torturing a cop he goes outside it's probably two in the afternoon on a thursday he goes to his trunk he goes to his trunk he gets a gasoline can over to the cadillac yeah the music stops because he's not where the music is anymore he comes back in the music is on again he does his little dance he goes he pours the gasoline all over the guy he's gonna burn this poor guy and right before He's about to drop the match. Uh, what does he say? He says, uh, how about a little fire scarecrow? Uh, Lloyd, what happens to him? Well, you think he's actually going to drop that match. You're just waiting for this big fucking fireball, fire flame. And he just takes a whole bunch in the chest and and who knows where else? Because uh, Mr. Pink, uh, he got up. Um, I'm sorry, Mr. Orange. He was able to get his gun, figure out what was going on and, and just riddles him with bullets. Riddles him with bullets and then has the conversation with Marvin Nash. (laughs) Marvin Nash, uh, who's the uniform cop. They have this conversation where he, this is the point in the movie where if we hadn't told you earlier, you find out for sure that Tim Roth is undercover cop, Mr. Orange is undercover cop. Lloyd, will you raise your hand? Yeah, if if we, yes, I'm raising my hand. (laughs) If we can go back to the little bit of the dancing and the Michael Madsen stuff. Oh, yeah. He was very uncomfortable doing this scene he he was anticipating uh he because he was afraid of the dance the way the way that quentin tarantino wrote it was like he does a maniacal dance or something (laughs) and he just didn't know what he was gonna do 
And the dance that he ended up doing came to him just at, like at the moment he did it. Uh, he, he was basing it on a James Cagney uh, move that he remembered from some, some old movie. It's just perfect. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, it makes sense. That the it's way he shuffles a- around and, you know, he goes back and forth a little bit. It's, it's like it's neutral and it's almost kind of sweet if it wasn't about <laughs> yeah <laughs> and he really was not scene. into torture in this guy you know in real life he really was disturbed by having to do that scene what well, one of my favorite bits of that scene is just that when he pulls the straight edge razor out is that little bit where he just does the little like shaving like, <laughs> yeah, like he pretends to shave he, he mimics shaving his whiskers <laughs> like i don't know michael Matson is uh as I, when i watched this movie uh you know and he's been in a lot of things and he's he is a good actor but Michael Madsen should have been way bigger than he ever got really like he, he's, he's so good in this. He's so mm-hmm. like, there's just certain line readings in this where, you know, like, are you going to bark all day, little doggy? Are you going to bite? Like, yeah. you know, and I'm and he's not just Mr. Blonde and he's, he's been in other stuff, but it just never stuck as well as it did in this movie. He was great in Thelma and Louise. He was great in, um, in kill bill volume two. And we'll get to that, mm-hmm. but it's just, you know, it just, it never translated to a huge career, you know, it just kind of any, and you know, yeah. the thing is too, is, and this might sound like a weird thing to say, but it's the first time I ever really paid attention to it. He's kind of like a deceitfully handsome guy too. You know, he, he oh, kind of, yeah. yeah it's, like, not, it's not deceitful. It's okay. Good. Is it, is it there? Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I, okay. All right. I'm never afraid to, to jump out and say that, but I, I guess I just never really looked at him, but I'm looking at him and going, he's got pretty piercing blue eyes. He's kind of got, you know, he looks to me like a forties movie star. You know what I mean? Like those, oh, like back yeah. in like that yeah. classic, like tall, dark, handsome kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Going to sweep you away in a tuxedo kind of thing. Yes. <laughs> I, think we, I think we know where Laura stands on Mr. Blonde. <laughs> All right, so let's get a little bit further. Get towards the end. Mr. Orange kills Mr. Blonde. Nice guy, Eddie. Mr. White and Mr. Pink come back. Uh, they're trying to figure out what they're going to do. Uh, Mr. White, we haven't really talked about this too much. Is like pretty much like obsessed with getting Mr. Orange help. Like he, he, he is, really, seriously. as I watched this movie this time and I have not, you know, I've seen this movie a million times. I have not seen it probably in, in entirety in probably 10 years. It's been a long yeah, time. It's been a while for me too. Did you guys feel like, and, and maybe this is backstory that, you know, non headcanon stuff just in your head. Did you feel like Mr. Maybe Mr. Mr. White had a kid or something that died or like maybe on one of his jobs, something like this happened where, because he's just so invested in Mr. Orange and there's nothing, you know, you get a few scenes where you get the scene where they're sitting in the car talking about, you know, uh, you know what their jobs are. This girl's ass sitting here on my dick. Let's go get a taco. You get the idea that they're, they're like becoming kind of friendlier than they're supposed to be. You know, yeah, uh, well, that's too. kind of reflected in the initial scene with Mr. Orange and H- Hideaway. Oh, I can't. All the way. All the way. That's all I can't remember. Um, where he's describing the guy, Long Beach Mike, that initially got him into this heist in a friendly way. And Holdaway's like, no, he's not your friend. Don't say he's a nice guy. So, like, Tim Roth is coming around to a friendship with Mr. White. He sees the good in Mr. White and they're becoming close. Yeah. They do definitely have a bond. Um, You know, you can see that in the car when, when Mr. Uh, Orange is all bloody and he's holding his hand, like you said, and saying, you know, tell me you're going to make it. You're all right. You know, they have a bond. He told him his name, Larry. Yeah. He just wants to protect this kid. Yeah. For whatever reason. And, you know, I'm glad we don't know it because, you know, I don't have to know it, but there's got to be something in his history that Tarantino has in his head. Like why he would do like, there's a bit that's like weird too, where it's not weird, but it's like 
weirdly sweet where he pulls the he whispers in his ears, pulls the comb out and like right. combs his hair. Like it's important to look good. Like while you're like in this state, you and know they what both I mean? Have a little laugh. Yeah. It's yeah. Larry. So, it's, <laughs> so, so uh, when they come back, uh, nice guy, Eddie uh, wants to know what happened to Mr. Blonde, uh, Tim Roth, who's dying. He says, Hey, look, he was going to burn the whole fucking place. And then he was going to rob you guys. And that tips off nice guy, Eddie, that That's it, right th- there. this is, this is bullshit because that dude just did four years for uh, like a stupid thing. And he could have gotten on any point. He never said a fucking word. Mm-hmm. So uh, as we move towards the end of this, uh, we, we get Joe comes back and now everybody is essentially against everybody only one that is trying to remain cool and calm is mr pink he's almost been the voice of like criminal reason the whole time like (laughs) let's just get diamonds let's go let's get out of the like the the warehouse let's get out of this place if cops knew we were at that place they're gonna know we're here because trying to remind everybody that they're professionals and they're acting like amateurs right Right. He's the only one. Uh, so we get to the point where eventually it all comes down to how does the standoff start? Well, Joe, uh, Joe and them come back. Right. And Joe's like, it's Mr. Orange. He's the rat. And Harvey Keitel, Mr. White stands up. He's like, no, this kid's legit. He's OK. He's the only one I wasn't sure of. Yeah. I should have my head examined for, for uh, bringing someone in. I wasn't sure of. Right. And Joe was just like, you're full yeah. of shit. I know what I'm talking about. He's the guy. Let's get the gunplay right. Because this is this <laughs> gonna be confusing. So Laura, who does Joe point his gun at? Joe points his gun at Mr. Orange. Mr. He Orange. wants to kill him because okay. he wants, he thinks he's the, the rat. Knows right. he's the rat. So Mr. Orange is laying prone on the ground. Joe standing up points his gun. That's how it all starts. Mm-hmm. Where does Mr. White point his gun, Lloyd? Mr. White points his gun at Joe. So now Mr. White is pointing his gun at Joe. Joe does not move his gun to Mr. White. His gun remains trained on Mr. Orange. Nice guy Eddie pulls his gun out and points his gun at Mr. White. Mm-hmm. Now, Mr. Orange at this point, I think, pulls his gun on nice guy Eddie, right? See the no. one with Eddie? Mr. No. Orange is not involved. Yeah, his gun is he empty. He does not do any shooting, yeah. Oh, yeah, he, he emptied his gun on Mr. Blonde. Okay, so okay, so now we've got a Mexican standoff. We have one. Now we get to the mystery of the movie. We get to the. <laughs> oh, is is there a mystery? Oh yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. So maybe I haven't been paying attention. So okay. All right. So we have three guns trained on four. There's four different people in three guns. Okay. So the way this starts, and this is one of my favorite lines in the movie. I've always loved it. Is um. And it's, it's how it all basically ends is, uh, you know, they're talking to each other and they're saying, you know, Joe, put, <laughs> I wish I could do Harvey Keitel because he's just, yeah, I right. love his voice, but it's, you know, it's great. Uh, I repeat, Joe, lower your weapon. You know, like, like the way he's, you know, they get that Harvey Keitel to him uh, and, and Joe's going to kill Mr. Orange no matter what. And, uh, and then my favorite line is nice guy. And he says, stop pointing that gun at my dad. Yeah, that's a good one. And as soon as that line ends, we get guns going off everywhere now. Okay. So, I'm trying so to here's what happens. Yes. Joe goes down because Mr. White. Mr. White shoots him. Right. Mr. White goes down because, because um, nice guy Eddie shoots him. Mr. Orange, who's bleeding on the ground, now gets killed from Joe. At the same time, nice guy Eddie goes down, but nobody shot nice guy Eddie. So Mr. There is an explanation for this. So Mr. White did not shoot both of them? No. You can clearly see that he did not shoot him if you slow down, you know, slow-mo the, the scene. All right. Okay. Laura, did you notice this or am I? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Chris, there's uh, the 
I don't know if it was about like an interview or a commentary scene, but Chris Penn explains what happened. Uh, his squib went off like too quickly. Harvey Keitel was supposed to shoot Joe, then really quickly shoot Nice Guy Eddie, but he, Nice Guy Eddie's squib went off before Harvey Keitel got there, and Quentin well, Tarantino just wanted to keep it in the movie. <laughs> there's one. There's one other aspect: is that Harvey Keitel was supposed to shoot Joe and then Eddie. Mm-hmm. He was supposed to turn and shoot Eddie, but before that happened, after he shot Joe, Harvey Keitel's squib went off. So uh, he went down. Uh, also, yeah, Chris okay. Penn's squib went off. So Chris mm-hmm. Penn went down because he was supposed to have gotten shot, but he didn't. So they all just dropped. And so floor. when they when they <laughs> finished up the scene, Chris Penn said, "Well, nobody shot me. You know this." And and uh, Quentin Tarantino said, "Leave it in. Yeah, people will be talking about yeah. it." <laughs> Yeah, I'll, I'll be exactly honest. See what happened. I'm a movie guy, pretty much a pop culture guy. Like I read stuff. I think I know stuff. I never noticed that. I never knew that. And, and I just watched this like three nights ago. And I, I guess in my head, I always assumed that Mr. White gets Joe and then gets nice guy, Eddie on the way down. Yeah, All right. That, it, it happens quick enough where like, there's a lot of like theories online. There's, it. there's even a theory, Mr. Pink or, yeah, Mr. Pink shot him. Remember, he was hiding underneath the ramp. He's under the ramp, but as and soon as he comes that out happens, with his gun, he comes out with his gun. So, you know, theories are, well, Mr. Pink shot Eddie. And you can believe that if you want, but it wasn't written that way. Mr. Pink comes out from under the ramp. What happens to him, Laura? Uh, he just grabs the diamonds and he uh, he fucks off. <laughs> he fucks but, off. Uh, yeah. but, <laughs> looks right the hell off. But so that, we can hear in the background yes. noise, we hear the, the sirens are coming. We hear yelling. We hear them. Uh, telling him to pull over, I believe. And then you hear shots in the background. Again, all this is off screen. You don't see any of it. It's all left up to your imagination. So there's never really even been concrete. Like it's never been concrete. What actually happened to Mr. Pink. Right. I think everybody has their own theory on that. Inside the warehouse, Mr. White crawls up, gets himself over to uh, Mr. Orange, who Mr. Orange, who despite already being half dead and then getting shot again is still alive. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he gets up, he grabs him. He puts him up basically like kind of like almost like, like leaning up in his lap. And you have this moment that like, you know, I guess it's just, it's a moment of compassion between two men on two different sides of the fence where, you know, Mr. White is like holding him. Like even after all this, he's still willing to die on this, on, uh, you know, he's going to die with this guy that he barely knows. And then, you know, I almost think it would, it makes it worse for him, you know, cause they would have died anyway. But what is, what is, what does orange tell him Lloyd? Mr. Orange tells him I'm a cop. Yeah. <laughs> he tells him he's a cop. And as soon as he tells him he's a cop, uh, Harvey Keitel goes into like the saddest, like old guy, like, yeah. <laughs> He just, he starts to like kind of weep because he has now been proven wrong. He has broken bonds with these people that he had been bonded with much longer than, than Mr. Orange, which is like a week of trusted the people he should have trusted. And the movie ends with uh, essentially the cops that you heard um, outside breaking in. And we get this kind of pan in shot where it's uh, it's, you know, he's Mr. White's holding the gun to Mr. Orange's head. Shots happen. Mr. Yeah, you hear Mr. gunfire, but your gunfire, you see, see anything. You see Mr. White kind of fall back. So we assume maybe he got shot. He probably shot Mr. Orange. This is not a happy fucking ending. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and we get the credits right there. So that that's essentially the body of Reservoir Dogs. Now, since we're going to be wrapping up in a few minutes, I did want to go over a couple of things uh, since we will be talking about the career of Tarantino over the course of the next 10 episodes with our next nine different guests. One of them is basically the themes of this movie. 
um, and themes that will carry on into his career. And these are just a couple things I wrote down, but I just want to see how you guys feel about this. One of them is essentially just the, the theme of criminal life and life, the criminal way of life. I mean, all of his movies, almost, almost all of them are either told from the point of view of people that are, are criminals or, or necessarily not the best people. There aren't many. Yeah. On the fringe, there are not really any white hats in a Tarantino movie. And this is the first time we see that, you know, we're going to be getting very used to it in Pulp Fiction. We follow criminals and, and kill bill. Even our heroine in kill bill is a criminal who is uh, on, on a revenge path. Another thing uh, it's a huge theme in all of his movies is violence as a way of life. These people like just so much killing and so much maiming and, and murdering and torturing. This just goes on and on throughout the course of his, of his career. And I guess one of the other things that I put down was, and Laura kind of touched on it a second ago was, and it does happen repeatedly is trust amongst ultimately untrustworthy people. I mean, you know, like (laughs) these are, these are people that are banded together that in this movie, none of them should trust each other. There's no reason to trust each other. And the few that should trust each other end up not trusting each other and choosing the wrong people to trust and put their trust in kind of do see that as it goes along. I mean, I'll use just as, as a, you know, kill bill, kill bill is a perfect example of, you know, the bride trust bill with all of her life and all of her heart. And look what happens to her. You know what I mean? Like, and we'll get to that when we get to that episode, but I don't know. Do you guys have anything to add? to that? I I agree. I would add, you know, you're talking about like the criminal life and it shows like some of the slides happiness of that life right in the humor of it in in like some of the mundane aspects of it yeah yeah that, that this is not like a glamorous thing like right. this is we're, we're not, not watching like and polished yeah this is when we're talking about diamond like this movie is a diamond heist we're not talking about like you know and i know it's comical but like the pink panther remember the david nivid pink panther movies where you know he would come down on a rope and you know <laughs> sneak around and all that stuff this is not the diamond I like those kind of heists yeah <laughs> this is not in glass yeah 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 right. cutting a hole yeah. in glass like the great muppet caper this is not yeah. the great muppet caper this is this is much much more hardcore okay so i have a question for laura mm-hmm. how do you feel about i guess this is it's pretty blunt but fiction it's written we get some hard language some hard words in the in his movies mm-hmm. do you think that that adds to do you think that it makes it feel more realistic for these characters or do you think it's excessive? Because many people, Spike Lee included, gone on about Tarantino's use of the N-word. It's used in here probably five or six times. Yeah, um, um, I think that is unnecessary. And I don't really understand why he uses it to the extent. I'm not a fan of that part. Uh, but I, like, besides that, like, rough language should definitely be part of the dialogue and the excessive cursing, like, the how much 270 something uses the fuck like yes that obviously is how criminals or like at least these type of criminals would be speaking to each other so yeah i think it's it's well placed and well used the n-word which i'm not okay with yeah it's i i i agree with you it's definitely rough on a rewatch yeah yeah it is Yeah, especially especially now like and i don't even want to say especially like it should have always had that like ooh, like impact like why are you using this to excess and like it's not even as excessive as it has been in movies that that came after this oh this is probably the least yeah i mean we'll we'll, as we watch we'll find out but this is you know i think that one word in particular is maybe five times which is too much Mm -hmm. but i i think when we go down the road like django and chain and stuff like that which 
again, I, for writing sake, I kind of get it when you're setting it in that period where you, you know, you, you might want to, I don't want to say want to use, there's no winning in this conversation. (laughs) Yeah. It's yeah. It's, it's, it's a tough one to broach, but I think it's uh, I think it's especially for three white people. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. And what you'll find in this movie as well is no female speaking roles. No. I mean, you see the back of one woman, right. And you see her get shot. Yeah. You need to to put more females in as of, as of this movie. What was that, Laura? It does not pass the Bechdel test. No, that's, right. That's the one I was talking about before. Yes, yeah. You brought I've heard, now I've heard about that twice in two weeks. That's weird. Lloyd brought it up like a week ago. Now you bring it up. Okay, I'm gonna look this up. All right. Um, okay, so before we finish off, uh, why don't we talk a little bit about maybe things in this movie that um are QTisms, things that we're going to see or in future movies. Now I've got I've got a couple things I'll rattle off, and then if you guys noticed anything in particular, I brought it up earlier, uh fruit brute cereal. Uh, if you look in the background of a Freddie Newman Dykes apartment, <laughs> he has a box of fruit brute in Pulp Fiction. The Lance character played by Eric Stoltz is eating fruit brute. Fruit brute was one of the original blueberry Frankenberry fruit brute. It was uh, discontinued and then brought back a couple years later. So it only lasted like a year or two back in the seventies in also in Freddie's apartment on the wall. He has a Jack Kirby silver surfer post- poster. Yep. It's signed Kirby. It's a Kirby drawing in Crimson Tide which is a Tony Scott movie. Tony Scott directed True Romance, which was, which was also a Tarantino, uh, a Tarantino, written by Tarantino, written by Tarantino and was supposed to be his original first movie, but he sold it to get money to put towards Reservoir Dogs. Uh, so Tony Scott wrote, uh, wrote or directed um, True Romance. And apparently they must've had some kind of good relationship because there's a scene in Crimson Tide which was directed by Tony Scott, the Denzel Washington, Gene Hackman submarine action movie, where two of the seamen are arguing about who drew the best silver surfer, Jack Kirby or um, Mobius. And that whole scene was written by Quentin Tarantino. So you get the silver surfer that pops up later on a couple years later. Some of the names that I notice uh, when they're talking to Mr. Blonde about his prick of a um, pro officer, it's Seymour Scagnetti. Uh, yeah, it's Scagnetti. In Natural Born Killers, also written by, but not directed by, Tarantino, the cop played by Tom Sizemore is Jack Scagnetti. Vic Vega, as you mentioned earlier, is the brother of Vincent Vega from Pulp Fiction. He was going to, at one point, make a prequel movie called The Vega Brothers that never happened. They got too old. Yeah. They, got, they got too old, yeah. yeah. Do you have in there uh, Jack Rabbit Slins? No. Did they, did they mention that? It was like, uh, uh, it was on the radio yeah. during, during Reservoir Dogs, an uh, ad for Jack Rabbit Slins. Okay, which is the restaurant in Pulp Fiction that Mita Wallace? Yeah, they have the contest. They do the dance contest. Uh, let's see what else do I have. Um, when they have when they're talking to Mr. White, he asks about Joe Cabot. Asks about uh, Alabama. Mm-hmm. Alabama is the name of the female character from True Romance. Uh, he said that at one point he had planned on making it so that at the end of True Romance, when he first wrote it, that she would eventually move on because the original script was Clarence the. Uh, Christian Slater character dies. She moves on after he dies and becomes a thief. And that was his initial story when he was writing all of this. And then he it ended differently. So, and then they that also mentioned cool. that would have been cool, right? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, they also mention uh, Marcellus Spivey, um, just the name Marcellus because you get Marcellus Wallace in the next movie. Um, and I think that is everything I have. Uh, let's see, Laura, did you notice anything in particular? Well, obviously the trunk shot, it was the kind first. of the, the first appearance of everybody looking down into something, whether it be a trunk or the uh, the box in pulp fi- the briefcase in Pulp Fiction, and 
Oh, uh, the, the conversations around tables. He always writes really great conversations that happen at ta- like his best dialogue comes at a table. Right. Uh, a bunch of people. Diner scene in the beginning, which is. Yep. That's why I said before, it's like the overture to everything that's coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and you can see the, the two sitting across uh, Mr. Orange and uh, Holdaway sitting across the diner from each other. That's reflected in the scene. Uh, also a Tim Roth in Pulp Fiction. And then one that's also popping out the in Kill Bill when uh, Lucy Liu is addressing the members of the, the Japanese mafia around the table. Like just, they, he always has really good table conversation. Right. Like there are always really good points of dialogue. That works. That absolutely works. Lloyd, anything else that you, you no, picked up? You, we, we got them all. All right. <laughs> Everything, you know, nothing that I could find beyond those. No. All right. Well, I'm sure there's something we might've missed, but we'll, we'll have, we're going to have some supplemental material to go along with this show. Uh, uh, Mike uh, Field and uh, Pat and the guys over there at Forgotten Entertainment are going to uh, come up with some good ideas. So I guess that's it. I guess that's on the QT episode one, where we discuss the first film, in the uh, catalog of, uh, I celebrate his entire catalog. I like saying that uh, of Quentin Tarantino. Uh, Laura has been our guest for this one. Laura, thank you so much for coming on and trying something different with us. Oh yeah, thanks for having me. This is awesome. Thanks, Laura. Always yeah. talk about Reservoir. Dogs. Always good to have you on. Yeah, uh, and oh, it's uh, good to be here. Before we go, we got to rate this thing. Let's uh, let's talk about what we give this. We're going to go on the uh, the zero to five star scale. Quarter scale is uh, is usable as well. So. We'll start with our guest. Uh, we have we don't always have the ladies' first attitude here, but we'll have it tonight. <laughs> we'll go with Laura. Laura, on a scale of zero to five, what would you give 1992's Reservoir Dogs? I'm gonna go with 4.25. It's definitely highly rated in my book. It's a movie that I've loved for many, many years. Deducting points for the use of the N word. <laughs> okay. And uh, yeah, I'm not rating it higher because I feel like his movie making style did improve. A lot. So while I think the dialogue in the movie is great, um, I think he definitely improved as a director as he went on. So 4.25. I'll go next. We'll leave, we'll leave Lloyd for the last, uh, man, this is tough. And I've thought about it and you, you kind of put me out on an Island, Laura, by saying the deduction because the N word, because now I feel like I, I (laughs) I feel like I should, but I'm going to be honest. I'm not going to, and I don't give this to a lot of movies. But the second I popped this in the other night to the second it ended, particularly because of the writing, just the originality of it all uh, in terms of um, like, you know, this thing is iconic. This is five stars. Like I don't have a lot of five star movies. This is a five star movie for me. I, you know, and another thing is, is it's succinct and to the point it's, it's fairly short. It's like an hour and a half long and it gives, it gives me everything I want. I, I get character, I get character development, I get plot i get motive i get everything i want in this movie and it's all jammed right in there and it's it's spit out right at me great performances yeah this is a five for me and and again i I say this as we go along they're not all gonna be fives this is a five all right lloyd what do you give 1992's reservoir dogs oh this is uh one of the all-time best independent movies i would give this Boy, oh boy, 4.75. I can't go with full five. All right. Uh, 4.75, man, it is right there. It it sets up the tone for uh, Quentin Tarantino to come. Uh, I wish it had a little better soundtrack. 
You know, it has a good enough soundtrack, but you know, it's, it's want, limited. There's not, more. it's limited. Yeah, it's limited. That's a good way to L- say it. Little green bag, coconut. There's not a lot in this, but yeah, I know, I know what you mean. It's limited. Yeah, so four point seven five. I, I think that that's that's it for me. All right, so uh, we we got our ratings. Laura, thank you so much for coming on and hanging oh, out thank with you us. For having me. Mm-hmm. You, were, you were the first guest. You got to pull the uh, the Reservoir Dogs. Next guest is our buddy Shane from uh, a podcast called Media Mosh. He will be joining us on the next episode, which will be episode two, which will be, guess what? Pulp Fiction. So, uh, boy, if you think we had a hard time fitting uh, Reservoir Dogs into an hour conversation, <laughs> Pulp Fiction is going to be a, a, a true test to our abilities to get that done. <laughs> but until the next time, uh, my name is John. And I'm Lloyd. And this has been On the QT, presented by Forgotten Entertainment. See you next time. See ya. See ya.